The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Now we have this wonderful privilege to gather around God's Word and study it, so uh, let's go there. Like I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today, and before we actually go to Luke, keep your finger there, and you can flip to the book in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, after Romans, and Corinthians, Philippians chapter 2, because I want to read one verse as background for the sermon today. We are going through the Gospel of Luke. That is a privilege. It's a joy. Uh, One of the benefits or blessings of going through the Gospels is you're pretty much... uh, Dealing with Jesus every single week. Can't get any better than that. Interacting with the person of Christ, the ministry of Christ. It's all about Christ. And so we have that privilege today. Today we're looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And we'll pick up where Derek left off preaching last week. We saw two amazing miracles that happened, uh, revealing who he is. He's the God-man. He is, was deity incarnate a compassionate, wonderful, blessed Savior, and we'll pick up on the next passage, which is Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, is what we're looking at today, and the title of the sermon put there for you is The Nature of Apostolic Ministry. The Nature of Apostolic Ministry, because that's really the focus of the apostles, the 12 apostles, and specific ministry that Jesus entrusted to them. And from that incident that actually happened in history 2,000 years ago, it would be beneficial to glean some principles of ministry from the apostles. And that's what I want to do. We should do that. Uh, the apostles had many responsibilities, and one of them was to be examples and models to the church and saints for all time. Paul even said that in the book of Corinthians. He said to his church that he planted, he planted the Corinthian church. He was their pastor, and after being there for some time, over a year and a half, he pastored, and then he went away, and then he wrote him a letter, and he he exhorted them. He said, be imitators of me, as I also am of Christ. And he knew that he was a sinner and fallen saying that, but what he meant was, insofar as God has empowered me to be obedient to the Spirit of God as an apostle, primarily, a representative of Jesus Christ, in terms of your view towards God and how to do ministry and how to live life, as you've seen in my presence, but also as you read in my epistles, Follow my example, because it's not of my own making. I get all of it, 100% of it, from Christ himself. So we need to do the same thing. We need to heed that charge that Paul gave. We need to imitate the apostles as followers of Christ. And that is laid out in Scripture. And today's passage is a perfect example. So the theme is the apostles of Jesus Christ and practical ministry Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about the apostles. There were the 12 apostles who studied with Jesus while he was on earth. And then he ascended and went back to heaven. Then about five years later, God saved Paul. He was a Christ-hater, Christian killer. And God radically saved him. Didn't just save him, forgive all of his sins. He made him an apostle. Not one of the 12 apostles, but a special and unique apostle called the apostle to the Gentiles. The 
12 apostles would primarily be working with the Jews, and God entrusted this unique ministry to Paul to be the apostle to the Gentile, Greek, non-Jewish world. And he wrote Ephesians. He planted this church at Ephesus. Then he wrote this, and he makes this statement as he's moved by the Spirit of God, talking about one of the unique roles of the apostles. By the way, there are no apostles today. You might hear that at some churches or some ministries. Apostles, there aren't any apostles. Nope. Last night at our Mormon seminar, we learned that the Mormon church has 12 apostles living today. And they always have 12. No, they don't. There are no more apostles. There were 12. That was it. Then they died. And then Paul was the, the apostle of the Gentiles. He died. That was it. And the apostolic ministry ended. And Paul speaks to that here in Ephesians chapter 2. Is he talking about the church of God that God began on the day of Pentecost? And if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you're a part of the church of God. So then, verse 19, you, Christian, born-again believer, saint, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Before you got saved, you didn't know God. You were an alien. But now you are fellow citizens with all believers or with the saints. And you are of God's household. You are a part of God's household. You are a part of the church. That's what he means. The household of God is the church. Verse 20. Well, what about the church, Paul? Well, I'll tell you. God's household or the church has been or having been built on the foundation of the apostles. Key statement. When did the church begin? Well, not in Genesis 3, not in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 12, not with Moses, not in the Old Testament. Church isn't in the Old Testament. It began on the day of Pentecost with the apostles, and right here, clear as a bell, began with the apostles, and they laid the foundation of the church. They are the foundation of the church. That's what Jesus trained them to do. And this happened after he left and ascended into heaven, commissioned his 12. The Spirit of God came upon them on the day of Pentecost, and they laid the foundation of the church. They wrote the New Testament for us, the words of Jesus. That is also part of the foundation that they laid. So we have the foundation of the apostles intact. We don't need 12 more apostles. We have the apostles. They're right here. It's the New Testament. And it is the foundation for the church perpetually, and it will be until Christ returns. So now go back to Luke chapter 9, and we pick up in Luke's account of the ministry of Jesus Christ spanning about three and a half years. He's getting testimony from many people who were alive during the ministry of Christ, even probably some who were alive during the birth of Christ, wrote it all down in this long gospel called what we call the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters in our English Bible. And his audience, first and foremost, is this friend that he knows, this dignitary, if you will, who might be on the fence about Christianity. And Luke is just laying out evidence. Evidence about the gospel, evidence about Jesus Christ. And he's presenting this to Theophilus, was his name, to consider Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the judge of the earth, and the Savior of every person that would bow their knee to him. That is Luke's objective, but God had a greater objective beyond Theophilus, and that was that God knew he would preserve this gospel for believers of all time. 2,000 years later, it's just as relevant for us today. We can use it for the same purpose. If someone isn't a believer and, 
they have questions about Christianity or they're criticizing Christianity and poking holes at Christianity, you can, you can tell them about the Gospel of Luke laid out. Where's your evidence? It's right here. It's in writing. It's lasted 2,000 years. Supernatural evidence, by the way. It's all about Jesus Christ. So we can use the Gospel for the same way. So we are now into the ministry of Jesus Christ. We saw his birth, uh, amazing supernatural virgin birth and the events surrounding that, and then God gives silence for 12 years, and then just a little peek on one day when he's in the temple as a 12-year-old, really, uh, where his identity of being, having a unique relationship with God the Father is revealed to those around him and also to his parents, and then silence from age 12 to age 30, 18 years. of We don't know what happened in Jesus' life other than he was living with his family, working hard, being the oldest sibling in his family, being a carpenter, learning those skills probably taken over after Joseph died, taking care of the family. And then at age 30, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he leaves his family. He leaves Mary, his mother, and for the next three and a half years, he's doing nothing but being single-focused on fulfilling Old Testament prophecies regarding the calling of the Messiah, leading up and culminating in his death, his substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, and then fulfilling Old Testament prophecies by raising himself from the dead proving that he is the one and only Savior of the world. And then also in fulfillment of scriptures, he would ascend back into heaven to be with the Father and the Holy Spirit, with whom he had a relationship in eternity past for all eternity. The difference being that he is now permanently in a physical, resurrected body, which he took on after his death. Then he commissioned his apostles, uh, trained them, and so for this, uh, at age 30, he begins his ministry. For the most part, uh, for a good solid year plus, Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years, and it's customary for us to say, well, Jesus trained his apostles for three and a half years or three years. Technically, that's not true. Because he didn't call all 12 at the same time. And as a matter of fact, all 12 of them together uh, weren't together for more than a year after Jesus had already been in ministry. And so Luke chapter 9 gives us a little picture about that. So uh, technically we can't say that the 12 apostles were trained by Jesus formally together for three years. It was less than that. As a matter of fact, it was incremental in how Jesus called his apostles. There were at least five specific callings by Jesus. The first one is in John chapter 1. You don't need to write it down, but just by way of reminder. When Jesus began his ministry, immediately after he got baptized, he was down there. Uh, he lived in Galilee, but he went down to where John the Baptist was baptizing, closer to Jerusalem, 200 miles away by the Jordan River, away from his home. And that's where he met six fishermen, Andrew, Peter, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, because they went down, they heard about this crazy guy named John the Baptist. One of them was actually John the Baptist's disciple, and they probably all listened to him preach, were convicted, and got baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus was down there, got baptized too. And that's when Jesus called those six men, not to be apostles, not to be disciples, but to faith in him as the Messiah. So that was the first calling. So some time goes by, over a year actually goes by. Matthew 4 and Luke 5 give two different occasions. A year later, now maybe since they were all from Galilee, they probably heard about Jesus and his teaching. 
because he was creating quite a stir. Because after all, the first time he ever formally taught in the synagogue at age 30 in his home synagogue, he read from the Isaiah scroll, closed it and said, this day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Basically, he was saying, I am the Messiah. And there was just, the synagogue just blew up. And the leaders were infuriated. And they chased him out of the synagogue. And they tried to kill him. And they tried to chase and throw him off the cliff. And he slipped away. So that was the first time he ever taught in uh, the, the synagogue in Galilee and Nazareth. So no doubt some of those disciples had heard about his teaching. So, uh, so for about a year, they probably heard about his teaching. Maybe he saw him publicly. Maybe even saw him do a miracle because that's what he was doing all over the place. But he hadn't called him to be disciples or apostles yet for the first year at least. And then when he did in Matthew 4 and Luke 5, he sees them fishing. And it's only four of them as far as we know. It was uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John. And Jesus calls them to be disciples. Follow me. He didn't call them to be apostles. He said, follow me and be a disciple. And I will make you fishers of men. And they agreed to do that. And they left uh, temporarily their fishing enterprise behind. And they began to follow Jesus. But not necessarily formally every day 24-7 because Jesus had many other disciples. He had dozens and dozens of disciples. So those four disciples who became apostles were just some of the disciples. Then it was another three months later. So now you're almost a year and a half into Jesus' ministry where Jesus for the first time calls uh, those disciples to be apostles. We saw that in Luke earlier when we went through Luke chapter 6 where Jesus called, he had all of his disciples dozens and dozens, and then he had to make a choice. So he spent all night in prayer, led by the Father, and he chose these 12 men, and he designated them as apostles. Now, this is at least a year and a half into his ministry, and there's only about 18 months left of ministry at this point. So technically, how long did Jesus have the 12 apostles formally training them 24-7? Probably about a year and a half, based on the chronology of the four Gospels. So in Luke chapter 6, Jesus calls and decides, okay, these are the 12 apostles, and they are going to be, an apostle means a sent one. They will be his ambassadors. They will represent him formally, and they will take over his ministry after he dies and goes back to heaven. They will take over where he left off, and they will lay the foundation of the church. They will write his words down, and it became the New Testament. So he acknowledges them at 12. Now, for the next three months while they're apostles, they aren't doing anything. They're not preaching, they are not teaching, they're not doing miracles. What are they doing? They're learning. He said, follow me. And that's what they did. Follow, watch, observe. That's what a great teacher does. You model for your students who don't know a whole lot, and you give them exposure. And you have dialogue, conversation, and teaching. You do Q&A, see what they do know. And you correct where necessary, and he did that. So now they're 24-7 with Jesus for a good three months as apostles, probably around A.D. 28 and probably in winter, about February, 18 months before crucifixion. That was Luke 6. Now we go to Luke 9, fast forward about three or four months. So now it is A.D. 29, or I'm sorry, uh, fast forward a year from Luke 6, A.D. 29, February, uh, we are now two years into his ministry here in Luke chapter 9. And all the apostles have been doing up to this point is just watching, listening, and trying to learn. And so something unique happens. And Jesus feels at this point 
He's got about a year and a half left of his life on earth. He knows he's closing up the ministry in Galilee. He's going to be heading to Jerusalem, not too far away. Rising hostility against him. The crowds have been recently pressing in on him. He can't even hardly go anywhere. And so it's a transition point. And so now he needs to replicate himself, and that's what he's going to do. For the first time, he's going to replicate himself by sending off and commissioning these 12 apostles that he's been training and this is their first go. And it's, a, it's like a short-term missions trip. You're ready. Let's try this. And so that's the background and context of the short-term missions trip. So we just saw last week, Derek preached on the two miracles that he did. Raising people from the dead. Healing the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. People who saw it were just utterly in awe. Still asking, who is this man? Immediately after that, Jesus goes, he decides to go back after going through all these dozens and dozens of towns all over Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God and who he is. He decides to go back to Nazareth, his hometown synagogue. For all we know, it's been two years since he's been there because remember the last time he was there, he was chased out and they tried to murder him. Two years later, he goes back. This is according to Mark chapter 6. Does that miracle, goes back to his hometown synagogue, I'll try it one more time. <laughs> he teaches, they are outraged, they are seething. And so basically they chase him off again. And he's like, fine. And then that's, after, immediately after that, he does this. He commissions his 12 apostles. Let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. So immediately, again, after being chased out of his own synagogue, being mocked, even after most in the synagogue probably have seen miracles they've never seen in their life, because one of the miracles he did was in a synagogue. They have no excuse. He is who he says he is. So then it says in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Luke, and Jesus called the 12 together, his 12 apostles. Remember, Paul's not an apostle yet. And he gave the 12 apostles power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent his 12 apostles out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. Okay, think about you going on a short-term missions trip. Here are the instructions. You're going to Mexico and Pastor Bob's giving you the list. Item number one, take nothing for your journey. Take nothing for your journey. We don't know how long this commission lasts. It could be several weeks. Actually, it could be several months. Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Now, if you take Matthew 10 and Mark 6 and Luke 9 all together, Here's what he was saying. Take nothing uh, in excess on your journey. Take only what you need. Because there were things that they needed to take. And he listed them. But there are some things they shouldn't take. Uh, literally, don't take two staffs. Don't, in other words, we're here, don't take an extra staff. Don't take an extra walking stick. Which was common if you were leaving for a long period of time. Just take one. Because you don't want to be encumbered and you've got to be on the move and you're going to be going from house to house and keep it simple. That's what the other Gospels inform us. So uh, don't take an extra staff. Don't take a bag of money. Don't bring any money. I'll, God will provide for you. Uh, 
and food and bread and all that stuff, nor money, nor coins, uh, and do not bring two tunics. So they probably just bring one tunic. Uh, so you're going lean. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, who don't receive your message, they don't like what you're preaching. Can I come in? Sure. And then you start giving the gospel. Get out of my house. Oh, okay, Glad, gladly. That's what it means by don't receive you. As you go out from that city, for those who don't receive you, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. And so departing, the 12 apostles began going out through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Like I said, parallel passages are in Mark 6, Matthew chapter 10. And so what I'm presenting you today here as I go through Luke 1 through 6, I am filling in some of the gaps with information from Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 10. Matthew's passage is longer and more detailed, which makes sense because Matthew was one of the 12 apostles. He was a firsthand eyewitness. Luke is going back 30 years after the fact, finding out about this. Could be, maybe Luke talked to Matthew. Matthew told him about this incident. Then he wrote it down. So that's why uh, some of these principles aren't in Luke, but they are in either Mark or Matthew. Mark was not one of the 12 apostles, but he, he was a friend of Peter, the apostle. Um, and he may even be mentioned in the, the last part of the Gospel of Mark, anonymously. So let's look at this. So what I wanted to do is, taking Paul's exhortation, be imitators of me, an apostle, as I also am of Christ. And just, there were so many biblical principles of ministry that just leaked out of this passage. I thought, man, and I just started writing them down. And I just came up with this long list. It's like, we need to focus in on these. And there are principles here. There's continuity and discontinuity in terms of our relationship with the apostles, meaning there are things that we can do that the apostles did, we can replicate like they did, and then discontinuity is there are things that are unique about the apostles that we cannot replicate, and God doesn't want us to. And I'll highlight both of those, but I do have a, a list here of things that we can replicate in our own ministries as Christians because they are biblical principles. And not only are they modeled here by the apostles, they're modeled by Jesus throughout his entire ministry, and they're even modeled by the Apostle Paul and in all the epistles of the New Testament. And what it amounts to are principles of biblical ministry that apply even for us today. And as I was going through this list, I was thinking just about every one of these principles is true here at this church and how I conduct my ministry and how I oversee church ministry and how the elders think about and assess how different ministries should run and function and principles they should abide by and things we should do and things we should refrain from doing they can all come back and they're rooted in Scripture, and that's the way it should be. Our church is called Community Bible Church. Bible. Emphasis on Bible. We do things according to Scripture. Because this isn't our ministry. This is Christ's ministry. So we aren't called to be innovators or pioneers. We are called to be imitators, propagators. It's already been done. We don't need to invent the wheel. Jesus did that for us. We just need to follow his directions. And we see that very clearly right here. So let's look at this commissioning of the 12 apostles in 
glean some of these principles and, and, and really find a, a new, fresh appreciation of the, the unique ministry of the apostles, the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Because we are not apostles and they aren't around today. They were a precious, temporary gift to the church from God, Ephesians chapter 4, 11, and 12. They were given as a gift to the church to our benefit. That's what Ephesians 4, 12 says. So let's start at verse 1. And Jesus called the 12 apostles out of all those dozens of disciples, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Okay, so for the first principle here on the ministry of how we need to do biblical ministry is you need to do biblical ministry according to your gifts. The apostles were gifted. Key word here in verse 1, Jesus gave them. Jesus gave them power and authority. They didn't have inherent power and authority. They didn't earn it in some synagogue or from the training. They didn't get it like the priests inheriting it from their family bloodline. They didn't, like the, the Sadducees, buy it with money in Rome. They have power and authority because it was delegated, delegated by Almighty God at the sovereign choice of Jesus Christ because it is his church. Apostleship is a spiritual gift. The Apostle Paul lists apostleship as a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12, along with all the other gifts that we have. It's also mentioned in Ephesians 4.11 as a spiritual gift. It was the first spiritual gift given to the church. It was technically given before Pentecost. And here it is. So we can't do ministry to our potential in the way that God wants us to do if we aren't doing it in line with the giftedness God has given us. That's where we maximize ministry is when you're in sync with your own gift as empowered by God. And you might have more than one gift, or you got a couple gifts that are kind of mi uh, mixed up, or maybe you still don't know quite what your gift is, then you need to have an attentive ear and listen as you do ministry. And people say, boy, you do that really well. That blesses me. That's awesome. Boy, you're not very good at that. You're terrible. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe I need, whoa. Okay, I need to get more training, or I need to think about doing something else. So God will allow you through God's people to discover where you are gifted. But the important, the important thing for ministry here is uh, God gives the gifts. He does it at his sovereign will. We don't ask God. We can't pick and choose, God, I want this gift. No, he gives it. 1 Corinthians 12 says that the Spirit of God and God himself give it sovereignly to you. We don't choose it. I want this one. I want the sign gift. I want the fancy one. I want the one that nobody else had. No. At some point in my early Christian life, I I discovered I had the gift of teaching. I didn't know that. I actually didn't want that. I was afraid of people. I didn't want to stand up in public in front of anybody. That was scary. That was embarrassing. I don't want to do that. Please, no, please, God, no, no. Oh, no, sorry, you have... An elder literally at another church was telling, no, you have the gift of teaching. Sorry. You must do it. And I, man, that was fear and trepidation. But we need to be obedient to our gift. So that's point number one. The apostles were gifted by... Christ. And so their gift is apostleship, their gift is leadership, and all the their other gifts that go along with the gift of apostleship. Uh, the, another gift that they had as apostles, uh, verse 1 says part of what they're doing is to heal diseases. At the end of verse 2, it says to perform healing. At the end of verse 6, healing everywhere. The apostles had the gift of healing. The gift of healing is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. That is a unique gift. That's an apostolic gift. That's a sign gift. That's a, a gift that isn't uh, being replicated today by individuals, the gift of healing. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, mark it down. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 says the same thing very clearly, that the apostles had unique gifts that other Christians would not have. They had some gifts that we do have, but there were some gifts they had that they don't share with us because God gave them gifts that were needed to lay the foundation of the church. They were temporary. For example, they got direct revelation from Jesus Christ to write it down in Scripture. That is called the gift of prophecy. That gift isn't around today. Do we have prophecy? It's right here. Peter says Scripture is prophecy. We have prophecy today. It's right here. There is no gift of prophecy, divine direct revelation, that God is speaking into somebody's ear. It's right here. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says that very clearly. So they had unique gifts. And one of those gifts, 2 Corinthians 12.12, uh, 12, and then Hebrews 2.4, clearly says uh, that the signs or the gifts of an apostle were signs, powers, and mighty deeds. Signs, powers, mighty deeds. Or signs, miracles, mighty deeds. Those are three different categories. Sign was a supernatural apostolic gift where you did a miracle and it was pointing to something else. And it was evidence to affirm a truth about God. So the apostles were commissioned by Jesus and one of their credentials was their ability to do these supernatural miracles other people couldn't do. That's a sign. Sign always refers to a miracle that validates what God said is true. Moses did signs. Miracles other people couldn't do. The apostles did miracles other people couldn't do. Jesus did signs other people could not do. Read the book of Acts. Very interesting. And catalog every miracle that happens in the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 28 covers a period of 30 years of the early church. Guess who's doing signs, wonders, and miracles in the book of Acts? Is it every Christian? No, not at all. It is only the apostles and their immediate associates. Actually, it's only the apostles, Paul, and Philip. That's it. And Barnabas, who was with Paul, who was an apostle, small a, apostle of the churches. The only people doing signs, wonders, and miracles in the book of Acts for 30 years of the early church are the apostles and their immediate associates. How do I know? Because I went through it this week, looked at every miracle in the book of Acts. It says that God was doing amazing deeds, signs, wonders, and miracles, quote, at the hands of the apostles, end quote. So that's important because today we have people saying, oh, shouldn't every Christian be uh, going out and doing miracles, signs, wonders, and mighty deeds and uh, just trust the Spirit or some guy who's got some itinerant television ministry and books and everything else and he's out claiming to do miracles like the apostles, signs, wonders, because that's what God has called us to do. And then they will quote from Mark 16. And I want to read this passage in Mark 16 because if uh, people had questions about it. And if you have a, a King James Bible... Uh, it will go all the way up to Mark 16, verse 20. If you have a more recent translation even of the King James Bible and a good editor, they'll make a note after verse 8 in Mark 16, verse 8, and then starting at verse 9, the editor in the margin will say the rest of the information from verses 9 to verse 20 in Mark 16 does not exist in the best and earliest manuscripts of the Bible meaning that a couple centuries went by and some scribe, probably in a cave, his candle went dim and he thought he needed to help the gospel along and he had information from other passages and he literally wrote down information that didn't belong there. Or maybe he was just putting it and he was making a study Bible and he put it in the notes. And then the next scribe came along and thought, wait, why is that there? Oh, maybe that belongs there. And that's, that's how that happened. Because in Mark 16, uh, 9 and following, it says in verse... He's talking to the 11, Jesus is, verse 14, 
He's talking to the 11 apostles. And here's what he tells them, verse 17. These signs, these miracles will accompany those who have believed. Well, he's talking to the apostles, which is true. It's not anybody, any Christian that comes along. The apostles. And in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues, which the apostles did. They will pick up serpents, not be hurt. The apostle Paul did that. No one else ever did that that we know of. They drink any deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. That happened by the apostles in the book of Acts. So very important. So the apostles were unique, and they got a spiritual gift of healing and apostolic gifts of sign, wonders, and miracles that was unique. But the carryover for us is we have gifts even today, and they're listed in the Bible, and we serve accordingly in keeping with those gifts. So going back to Luke 9, uh, the 12 apostles were given a gift. Uh, Christ gave them power and authority over the demons to heal diseases, to perform healing, and the nature of their ministry. Why was it healing? Everything that the apostles did by Jesus, especially with respect to miracles, was in service to others, was to help others, was to be uh, caring with compassion towards others 100% of the time. It wasn't about, I'm going to do a sign or a so-called sign or a fake sign so I can make money and write a book and make more money and serve myself, which imposters have been doing for 2,000 years. So it was always other-oriented. It was always being a servant. It was always caring about people. And the principle here is that the apostles model for us is they, they minister with compassion. They're going out to minister to strangers that they don't even know in these cities and towns. And they're, they are loving them in the name of Christ. And they are showing compassion. I have this ailment. Can you heal me? My daughter is sick and bedridden. Can you heal her? And the apostles, with the love of Christ, were to extend the compassion of Christ on all of those people, without exception, without partiality. That's what we do in ministry. We aren't partial. We minister with the compassion of Christ. But they would do this uniquely by casting demons out of people and healing diseases. Verse 2, it says, and then so Jesus sent them. He sent them out. The verb for sent there is apostello, where we get the word apostle. They were ambassadors. They were formal representatives of Jesus. That's another unique uh, thing about apostles. They formally represented Jesus Christ with direct revelation. We don't do that. But he sent them out to go out into the community, to go out in these cities all over Galilee, and here was their mission. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So perform healing was validating their word that they were apostles speaking for Jesus. The Jews needed that. You had a, a Jew was trained. They knew if somebody comes and says, thus saith the Lord, then the Jew, who was an Old Testament Jew and was trained in the Old Testament, knew all the prophets, oh, thus saith the show me a miracle. Prove it. Because that's how God would validate his Old Testament prophets was by these unique miracles. And so the apostles are claiming to be apostles, Jewish representatives of Yahweh God. They had to validate it through this ability to do miracles. That was God's plan. That was temporary. What was uh, else characteristic of their ministry is they were to do one thing, and that was proclaim the kingdom. That was the primary ministry. The healing was secondary to validate the primary ministry. What was the primary ministry of the apostles? Preaching. What was the main thing that Jesus came to do? Preach. It wasn't to feed the poor. It wasn't to be a social worker. It wasn't to do miracles. It wasn't to heal people. That is not why he came. He came to preach the gospel about himself. 
that would be fulfilled with his death and resurrection so he could set sinners free. That's why he came. And that is the very narrow-focused responsibility that drives the ministry of the apostles, to proclaim the gospel. And you see that in the book of Acts, that's all they did. They went around proclaiming the good news. That's it. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the carryover. That's the same thing. That's the continuity. We don't heal, but we do one thing. We proclaim the gospel. What do you do at your church at CBC, Creekside Bible Church, Pastor Cliff? What do you do? What do you mean, what do I do? Well, what's your vision? What's your mission? What's your agenda? What are you trying to do in the community? What's your goal? Well, I don't have any. I've been commanded to do one thing, and that's to preach the gospel. That's what we do. And we're staying focused. We're not going to be sidetracked. But this is what Jesus did. You can read it in Mark 1, 14 and 15, where it's a summary statement about Jesus' ministry. He came preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling people to believe in the gospel and to repent. That's it. That's the summary statement. That's what Jesus did. What did Jesus do for three and a half years? He was a preacher. He preached the good news. He was the good news. He fulfilled the good news. He created the good news. He is the good news still. And that message is still all about him, the gospel, the good news. It's the only thing that sets sinners free. It is the power of God. It's the only power of God in the gospel. Gospel ministry. So that's what they were called to do. One thing, proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean, proclaim the kingdom of God? Well, in the words of John 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, it's how to be born again. Because two times Jesus refers to that phrase, the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So what is the message of the kingdom? You must be born again. It's a personal message. It's an individual message. It's a spiritual message. It's a message between you and your creator. You must be born again. That is the priority. That's Christianity. That is the gospel. That is our message. That's what we preach. We go door to door on Saturdays. That is our message. No other message. Well, what else does your church provide? Uh, Nothing. The gospel. We're just trying to be obedient. And that's true of the, they were faithful to this, verse 2. So that's their message, that is our message. Regarding a little bit further about this message um, in, in today's world, and you can go knocking on just about, you know, just churches all over in America. It's very different today because it's a church building, it's got a church name, but when you go inside, you don't know what you're going to get. It's like those, what is it, those box of chocolates? You don't know what you're going to get until you sit down and listen and watch and see didn't used to be that way. Go to a church, it's a church. Go to church, they're going to actually teach out of the Bible. They're not going to be ashamed of it. They're not going to undermine it. This day and age is totally different. When people want to hear, or they think of Christianity, that we preach a moral message, it's not a moral message. It's not morality. It's not do and don't. It's not right and wrong. It's not a social message. Church isn't about social justice. That never was the message. It's not a political message. The gospel, it's not an economic message. It's not a patriotic message. Oh, we need to uh, get America back to where we were. No, we don't. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. Don't confuse that with Christianity. Our message is not a temporal message, concerned, overly burdened about the here and now. We've got to save the planet, fix the planet. No, no, that's not our message. That's not Jesus' message. Do we care about the planet? Yeah, but that's not the message. It's not the good news. It's not the gospel. It's not the commission of the church. Don't be distracted, Christian. It's not a philanthropic message. Oh, we got to do good. We got to build schools in uh, Africa and third world countries. No, well, yeah, that's a good thing, but that's not the message. That's not our calling. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's not the good news. It doesn't save people's lives for eternity. 
not representing Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's not a philanthropic message. It's not a motivational message. There's a lot of motivational speakers out there. Oh, that made me feel good. It's not an inspirational message. Inspirational speakers, inspirational book. Did you read this book? Oh, great inspirational book. That's not the gospel. You know, for a lot of people, the, the gospel is not inspirational. The true gospel about Jesus Christ, that he is your creator, he is your judge, he is the Lord, he could be your savior, but there are conditions. You must admit you're a sinner. You must bow the knee. You must give your whole life to him. There are many people who don't like that message. That is not inspiring. That is not motivating. It makes them angry, so angry that they would crucify him on a cross. Don't be confused, Christian. Our message is not an innovative message. Oh, we got to do new things. We got to make it palatable. We got to be creative. We got to woo them in. We got to reel them in. We've got to appease them. We've got to answer all their questions. We've got to do it better than the next guy. We've got to be using uh, technology so we can do it better than it's ever been done before. Not, not the gospel. It's simple. It's a preached message. It's the living word. So it's not an innovative message. It's not reforming. We're not trying to reform anybody. We're trying to transform people. And Jesus does that through his gospel. Transform, a complete change from Death to life. That's not reformation, that's transformation. And finally, our message is not about rehabilitation. Same thing. Oh, make them better. That's not Christianity. It's not the gospel. You hear the gospel about Jesus Christ, and you believe it, and you repent. God changes you. He puts his spirit in you. Your old self has died. Your new life has risen. And those who are in Christ are a completely brand new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things about you, your identity, your future, what you believe, your relationship with God has changed. All things are new. That's the good news. And we don't earn it by good works. We don't do it by being good. We don't do it by trying to appease God. We have nothing to offer. It is all the grace of God. It is all the initiative of God. It is all the gospel of God. It is all his doing. It is all the work of Christ. The only thing we do is bring our sin to Christ and say, please forgive me. And we believe his message by faith. That is the gospel of the kingdom that the apostles were commissioned to preach. And they did it faithfully. They wrote it down and they passed it on to us. This is a good time for us to refocus as a church. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter what all the popular preachers and teachers are doing and what you see on YouTube and what the headlines are and what this denomination is doing and what's selling and what's popular. That, that doesn't matter. It's right here. We don't need that. Let's not be distracted. Be faithful to Christ. That's all that matters. What else about the apostles? Verse 3, he sent them out to proclaim this glorious saving gospel to sinners because God loves his people, he loves sinners. He wants to forgive them. He calls them to repentance. And then he said to them, uh, take nothing for your journey. Now, keep in mind, this is a short-term missions trip. You contrast this with Luke 22, where he sent them out for good. It's a different list. It's not, don't do this, don't. He's actually, in Luke 22, it's, okay, take this, take a sword, take money, take a bag, run for your life, stay focused, preach the word. Very different here. Short-term mission trip. Uh, Whatever house you enter, stay there. Oh, sorry, back to verse 3. Take nothing on your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Just take what is sufficient. Verse 3, what's the principle here? Trust God. 
Walk by faith in ministry. That's what we need to do. Well, I don't have the resources, God. Yeah, you do. Are you a Christian? Do you have the Spirit of God living in you? Do you have the Word of God? Do you have the power of prayer? Do you have the church of God and God's people around you? Do you have a commission that is clear that God's called you to do? You have everything you need, Christian. Christ is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. The Spirit of God is sufficient. And that's being modeled here. Trust me. The apostles, they had a hard time trusting Jesus. They had to learn this in their two-year seminary education. And for a year and a half, you see Jesus rebuking them. Oh, ye of little faith. You don't get it yet? The Last Supper, telling Thomas and, and come. You mean I have been with you this, this long, almost two years, and you still don't know who I am? You still don't know who the Father is? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So here's a lesson in walking by faith, also by being content, contentment. God, why don't I have this? God, I wish I had this. God, when am I going to get that? then you're discontent. God can't really use you very well. He can't use you to your maximum, that's for sure. If you're a whining, discontent, right, baby? Can't do that. We all have a tendency towards that because we're sinful, and we all need to be weaned off of this. Walk by faith, not by sight. When you're under the umbrella of walking by faith, you are putting yourself in the greatest position of being blessed and used by God beyond what you can even imagine or think. And that's the lesson here. Trust me. Uh, don't bring any money and food. What are you talking? How are we supposed to eat? Because God will provide. He provided food in the desert for 40 years. God will provide. Then verse 4, uh, whatever, this is contentment, whatever house. So you go into the city, foreigner, you are invited to a house. Stay there until you leave that city. So you go into a house. They welcome you in. Uh, you're not too hip on the food. The conditions aren't the greatest, but they're welcoming. They're loving. They're a poor, believing family. They're gracious. Stay there. As you look at the mansion across the street, that's about contentment. An obedient, spirit-filled Christian is content, trusting God in whatever circumstances he's put before you. Wait on him. Be patient. Be content. Verse 5, and as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is used a couple of times in the gospel. Jesus would do this at times. He'd go into a town, he'd preach the gospel, they would reject it, they would blaspheme, and he would make a visible sign, as the apostles are told to do here. This is a visible sign. This was, Jesus was accommodating or using uh, habits of the culture of the day in the Jewish community. It's not in the Old Testament, but it was a practice among the Jews. They thought the Gentiles were dirty. Don't step foot in Samaria, because they're not full-blooded Jews. If you step on the land in Samaria, when you're done, you've got to kind of shake the dust off your feet because they're dirty, they're unclean. So that's how, that was the Jewish attitude towards Gentiles. Gentiles were unclean. And Jesus turns this around and says, okay, I want you Jews, I want you to preach to nobody but the Jews. Because in one of the parallel passages, it says, when you go, don't go to the Gentiles, only to the Jews. And when you go to a Jew and you give the gospel about me and they reject it, I want you to turn, face them, and shake the dust off your feet in their face as a testimony of rebuke from Yahweh to them letting them know you are just as dirty as an unbelieving Gentile. That's what that meant. Well, literally, physically, I mean, isn't this just a metaphor? No, this is literal. So what was this? This was courage. We need to have courage in ministry. Also, it's discernment. We need to have discernment in ministry. It's case by case, person by person, trusting the Lord, being in prayer. How do you lead me? I'm in a difficult situation. They started out friendly. Now they despise me. Should, maybe I'll give them one more day. They're mocking Christ. They're mocking Jesus. 
They're trampling the pearls of the gospel underfoot like pigs. They're treating what is holy like dogs, dirty dogs. Do I stay here another day? Do I stay here another two days? Jesus, no. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give what is holy to dogs. End that relationship immediately. Leave. Find someone who's receptive to the gospel. Invest your time wisely. This is discernment. Not only that, when you leave to the unbelieving, blaspheming Jew, give him a sign of God's judgment by shaking the dust off of your shoes, literally. And I said that wasn't just metaphorical. How do I know? Because the apostle Paul did this as a Christian, as an apostle in Acts chapter 13 and in Acts chapter 18. Well, should we do this as Christians? We go door to door here on Saturdays. Somebody gets all hostile and nasty and throws their orange juice on us when we're on the porch. Do we give a visible expression of disdain? Oh, you blasphemer. God's curse upon this house. Take that and you throw your shoe at the front door. No. No. We're actually not called to do that, I believe. Because if you read uh, how Jesus used this, the apostles, anytime this was done, it was a Jewish custom. And that's where it originated. And when Paul used it, he, always, he only did this to unbelieving, blaspheming Jews who rejected his message. Only unbelieving Jews who knew better. And he was a Jew. So this is Jew to Jew, following Jesus. So as Gentiles, most of us, witnessing to an unbelieving fellow Gentile, uh, we don't need to be doing this. This was temporary. This was customary. This was a part of their culture, communicated a clear message. Actually, it flows out of the book of Ezekiel, of giving a visible sign and warning to the unbelieving Jew of you have rejected willfully and in an informed manner the message of God, and you, blood is now on your head. That was the way they communicated. So we don't need to be doing this. We behave in a, a different way. We, just, we leave. We don't throw our pearls. We, we leave. Leave hostility. You're in a relationship with your uh, family members, and they're hostile towards your message. Don't, don't prolong the conversation. Don't give fire to the division. God has called us to peace, 1 Corinthians 7. Leave. Separate. Boundaries. Verse, uh, going, on, going on with verse 5, and as for those who do not receive your message, um, so this was a physical testimony, and so then finally, verse 6, immediately they departed. This is obedience. That's what we need to do in our ministry. We're obedient. Who are we obedient to? Another principle. They did ministry according to the word of Christ. And they were only to do what Jesus said. Jesus gave a list of things they should do and a list of things, he, I think, nine things that, that they shouldn't do. Do this and don't do that. That's true for us. When we do ministry, we do this, what God has told us to do. We refrain. We don't do this. It's God, according to Christ's word. This is all Christ's word. Do what I tell you to do. So we obey Christ in ministry. It's real simple. We only do what Jesus says to do. We refrain from what Jesus said not to do. It's real simple. The message, here's the gospel, here's what it is. Don't change it, don't tinker it with it. It's what God has called us to do. And there's a whole litany of things that are just as clear as a bell. Here in our area, it's like uh, God says uh, pastors are to be qualified males. It's clear. First Corinthians or First uh, Timothy 2, many other passages. First Corinthians 14. I bring that one up because that's pretty common here in this area of female pastors. Well, that's against what Christ said in his Bible. 
This is not secondary, negotiable. It's in the Bible. You can try to explain it away all you want, but you're just tampering with God's word. Don't subtract from God's word. That's dangerous. It says Proverbs chapter 30 and Revelation 20. Don't do that. So I'm just kind of trying to bring it home. We need to obey Jesus of what he said and how we conduct ministry. And I, I use that as an example of women can't be pastors. Well, that's not demeaning to women at all. God created women. He wants the best for women. And he designed their role and their functions where they can excel. And some of the roles they have that God has given them, like being a mommy, that's the greatest occupation in the history of humanity, actually. And they have that privilege in a way that a man doesn't. Uh, so God uses men and women equally, just in different functions according to his word, and that's what we need to do, like the apostles. So it says, verse 6, departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel. See how the word gospel is used in verse 6, but Jesus told them to proclaim the kingdom of God in verse 2? Because what is the kingdom of God? It's the message of the kingdom of God is the gospel, and gospel means good news. And the good news is what? Jesus! That's the good news. He is the only good news. Everything else is bad news. He's the only good news. It's all about knowing Jesus Christ. That is our focus. He's the blessed Savior at any moment. He will, without partiality, accept any despicable sinner who is moved by the Holy Spirit of God and hears about what Jesus Christ can offer, total forgiveness of sin. And any sinner can go to Jesus at any time, confess their sin, and cry out to him. They don't have to be elaborate. They're sophisticated. They can do what that one man did, who was beating his chest, and all he said was, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he said it sincerely and with knowledge. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. That's the word he used. That man went home clean, totally forgiven, all of his sins, past, present, future. He's a child of the king. He's a citizen of heaven. He knows God. He's going to heaven. He has eternal life right now. That's what justified means. And it was just by that simple prayer of faith, God, be merciful to me the sinner. You pray that prayer, you mean it, that will change your life for all eternity. All for God's glory. Let's go to the Father and pray and thank Him. <laughs> Father, we thank You for this morning and the privilege to worship with the saints, to sing to You, and the power of Your Word, Scripture. You call it the living Word of God. Our job is to proclaim it, to teach it accurately where we need your help for that, Lord, as we are short-sighted, we are fallen, we are ignorant, we are self-centered, but with your Holy Spirit, you can override all those weaknesses on our part, and you can just unleash the living Word of God. Thank you for doing that for us today in this beautiful glimpse of a moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ, commissioning his apostles, and we have been the blessed recipients of their legacy, of their faithfulness, and literally of them willing to give their life for the truth. And God, uh, remind us to be just as willing to share this good news with anyone we meet. We know that you as a good, merciful, gracious God will respond to any sinner who comes to you in faith, asking for forgiveness. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.